Hi friends and welcome to Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa. We're glad to have you here joining with our church community. I'm Nicolette. Do you know if the people in your life see Jesus through you? Here at Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa, it's our vision to be a Jesus-formed community on mission. What is that mission? It is to both show and tell the world about the Son who came to glorify the Father by being lifted up and thus draw all people to Himself. Today, Pastor Brian Broderson asked the question, how are people today going to see Jesus in you? Showing Jesus to the world has never been done by people who don't sacrifice themselves and die to themselves. Time, energy, money, fleshly desires. As we follow Jesus, we're not alone in this journey. He's with us and the Father will honor us. We'll see how Jesus tells us how to do this in John 12. What we're going to do today is we're going to focus in on just a few verses. Now, we've, we've read these verses, uh, some of them already. Uh, Char sort of touched on a few of them last week when he was teaching. But what I want to really think about together with you today is the request that came uh, to see Jesus. These Greeks, we read here in the text, they approached Philip and Philip went to Andrew and they came with this request, sir, we would like to see Jesus. I would imagine that there are a lot more people than we think who, like these Greeks, are curious about and interested in seeing Jesus. I, I think we tend to think, and I think this is happening in the church, I think we there's a tendency to think that because uh, society has become so secularized and, and so um, in, in some ways very much opposed to God and to the ways of God and so forth, I think we're tempted to think that nobody out there has any uh, interest in Jesus at all. Why do we even bother uh, Lord, what are we even doing here? Why don't you just make the rapture happen so we can all get out of here because nobody cares. I don't think that's actually the case. I think there are more people than we would imagine. I, re I remember years ago uh, watching an interview with Michael J. Fox. And Michael J. Fox was asked by this interviewer, if, if, if you could talk to anybody in, uh, from history if you could have an audience with them, ask them questions, who would it be? And Michael J. Fox, without skipping a beat, he said, Jesus Christ, and completely shocked the interviewer. <laughs> That's not who they were thinking he was going to say. But, you know, I think that he, in that moment, was representative of more people in our culture than we might think. So the question is, how are people going to see Jesus? That's the request. We would see Jesus. How are people going to see Jesus? Well, the short answer is that they are going to see him through us. They're going to see him through us. That's, that's the simple answer. But, of course, I want to uh, elaborate on that. So I want us to see here in the passage, I want us to see how Jesus answers the question they come to him with this request. I want us to see how Jesus answers the question here by telling us both 
what he must do in order for the world to see him and what his followers must do if the world is going to see him. Perhaps you remember a few weeks back uh, that Char was teaching and he talked about our vision statement as a local church. And he said that our vision statement is that we are a Jesus-formed community on mission. So another question, what, what is the mission? What does that mean that we are on mission? Well, here it is. It is both to show and tell the world about the Son who came to glorify the Father by being lifted up. The text tells us here, Jesus said, and I, if I am lifted up, and that's a reference to his crucifixion. If I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. So let's jump into the story. I want us to look at the story, and then we're going to focus our attention today on verses 23, 24, um, or 24, 25, and 26, okay? So, but we pick up in verse 20. So now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. Uh, they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request, Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew, Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus, Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, the, the Greeks here are, they're actual Greeks. Um, they, they would be people who probably, since they're at this festival, they're they're probably at least in the category of, of God-fearers. So there were the Jewish people who were, they were the people of God. That's how they saw themselves. But then there were uh, proselytes. There were people who had converted uh, to Judaism, and, and they were considered to be part of the, the whole uh, Jewish family, but they were a little bit of, um, you know, sort of second-class family members. But then there were the God-fearers. There were those who were, they, they hadn't gone all the way of converting to Judaism, but they, they had expressed an interest in the God of Israel. And so that's who these people are, probably more God-fearers than proselytes. But the word Greek here is used oftentimes as a cinnamon, uh, cinnamon, synonym in the, um, in the New Testament for Gentile, which means non-Jewish peoples. So this, this is the question. The question is, how are the non-Jewish peoples going to see the Lord? How are they going to see the Savior? And so... Jesus, of course, is revealing himself to the nation. But even at this point, they don't know exactly who he is. They're still in 
the dark a bit about his true identity. So the only way that the Greeks and even the Jews could see Jesus in the truest and fullest sense of who he really is would be for him to die and remove the barrier of sin that barred all mankind from the deep and intimate relationship that God longed to have with those who he had created in his image. And, and so that's what Jesus is actually going to go on to talk about. When he says, uh, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, he meant something that nobody would have imagined. Now, in their mind, when Jesus said that, they would have thought, okay, this is the time that he is going to overthrow our oppressors. This is the time for him. The, those that are believing he's the Messiah, they're thinking, okay, this is, this is it. This is, this is the time has come now. He is going to restore the Davidic kingdom. He's going to take us from being oppressed, and he's going to put us on top. He's going to knock the Romans out of their place. That's what they would have thought about him being glorified. But Jesus has a completely different way in which he is going to be glorified. And so he says in verse 24, very truly, I tell you, unless a grain or a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed or it remains alone. But if it dies, it will produce much fruit. And then he says, anyone who loves their life will lose it while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. So Jesus says the hour has come. This is his answer. These, these Greeks want to see you. How, how are people going to see you? Uh, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He, in order for this to happen, he is going to die. He is the grain of wheat that f is going to fall into the ground. And so he uses this illustration. He's telling them what he is about to do. And by doing this, he will be glorified. And simultaneously, he will also glorify the Father. But... He's not only talking about what he or how he will glorify the Father. He's also, as we can see, he's also talking about us, his followers. So he's telling, in answer to the question or the request to see Jesus, he's saying this is how it's going to happen. I'm going to die. I'm the seed that's going to fall into the ground and die. And that way, I'm going to make the way for people to come and to see God in the fullest sense. And then what he's saying is, and you're going to have to die as well. And he's speaking to his followers. So to his followers, he's saying, you're going to have to die because it's through your dying, it's through your following me on the path of the cross that God is going to be able to work through you to bring the knowledge of himself to other people. That's what is being talked about here by Jesus. 
Now, I want us to look at these um, verses 25 and 26 more closely, but I want to look at 26 before we look at 25. So look at verse 26. He says, whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. So notice this. Jesus says that serving him equals following him. And remember, he's, he's on the, the way to the cross. So he's saying to those who serve me, to serve me, you must go the way that I am going. You must go the way of the cross. Now, of course, the way of the cross, in their minds, everybody would have understood immediately, <clears throat> he's talking about death, and he's not just talking about death, he's talking about a brutal death. He's talking about a gruesome death. You know, sometimes in our cultural time, we, the cross has been, um, it's, it's no longer really necessarily signifies what it originally did. In, in our day, the cross symbolizes sometimes uh, something like compassion. Oftentimes, it symbolizes love. And, and of course, in one sense, it does symbolize those things because it was through the death of Jesus that he showed his love and compassion. But in the ancient world, at the time of Jesus, when he spoke about going to the cross, everybody understood that he was talking about something that nobody actually wanted to have as an experience. But he says, those who serve me must follow me. They must follow me in the way of the cross. But then he says something really interesting. He says, notice, he says, whoever serves me must follow me. But then he says this, and where I am, my servant also will be. Now, when we think, when I think of the way of the cross, my natural inclination is to not go down that road. I don't want to go the way of the cross. But here's an interesting thing that one does discover, but Jesus told us in advance that this would be the case. Companionship with Jesus happens on the way of the cross. That, that's what he's saying here. He's saying, where I am, there my servant will be also. In other words, he, he knows he's calling them to something that is unpleasant, something that is to some degree undesirable, but he's also letting them know that there's, there's something in this that you can't see right now that actually will make it all worthwhile. It's companionship with me. And, and everyone who's followed the path of the cross through the hardships, through the difficulties, through the challenges, everyone would testify to, yes, there's all kinds of bitter aspects to this, but then there is a deep sweetness that sort of covers for all of those other things. It's like Jesus, it says about Jesus when he was, when he died himself, it says that he, um, it says he endured the cross, literally, he endured the cross. It says he did it for the joy that was set before him. He endured this cross. He despised the shame, but he did it for the joy that was set before him. What was the joy? The joy was the fact that he was going to save us 
and bring us into a relationship with him. And that's what he longed for. So the cross was the only way to get there. And he despised that part of it, but it was the joy that drove him. So when I think as a Christian about following Jesus and making him known and recognizing that there's going to have to be death involved, that's the bitter part. But then I recognize that there's, there is also a joy that is set before us. And it's that Jesus himself is in this. And we find him in this. And so he tells us that. And then he, the third thing he says there is he says that um, <clears throat> to those who serve him by following him, he says, him, my father, or them, my father will honor. So even though the way of the cross seems like the path we would really want to avoid, Jesus is saying, I'm there and the Father honors those who come there. Now, verse 25 is where we really want to land today. And look what he says. We read it already, but let me read it again. Verse 25. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Wow, these are, these are some of the hard sayings of Jesus. You know, years ago, um, a man named... Um, F.F. Bruce, I don't know, I can't remember what his first name was, but he goes as an author by F.F. Bruce. Uh, he wrote a book I have in my library, <clears throat> and the book is entitled The Hard Sayings of Jesus. And you know, there are some hard sayings of Jesus. And the time uh, when Jesus was here preaching and teaching, there were some hard sayings. There were times when, when the sayings were so hard, people said, I can't hang with this. Remember, we read about that back in the sixth chapter of John's gospel. Jesus is talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And some people are saying, no, we, we, we can't do that. We're, we're, we're going to leave. And many left him, it says. And then, remember, he turned to them who, who were there, his closest followers. And he said, are you going to leave me also? And Peter said, Lord, Peter had the right answer. He said, Lord, where else are we going to go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Yes, granted, these are hard sayings, but where else are we going to go? So we find times in the Gospels where Jesus is saying these hard things, where Jesus is saying, if anyone comes after me, let them deny themselves, take up the cross and follow me. Those that love their lives will lose their lives, but those who lose their lives will keep them for everlasting life. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father, mother, sister, brother, husband, wife, children, even their own life, they cannot be my disciple. We hear that, we're like, whoa, Jesus, what, what do you mean? Those are hard sayings. Well, what does he mean? What does he mean? He says, those that love their lives will lose it. What does he mean by that? Well, this is what he means. Loving your life in the sense that Jesus is using it here, and notice he's using it in a negative sense. Loving your life means living for yourself rather than living for God. That's what loving your life is, simply that. Living for yourself rather than living for God. 
Then he says, anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it. What does he mean by hate? Well, the word hate many times means exactly what it sounds like it means. Like, oh, I hate that. I detest that. I abhor that. And that is, of course, a meaning of the word hate. But the word, remember, the Bible is written originally, the New Testament, in Greek and translated into English. So the Greek word, like all words, really, oftentimes has to be understood in its context. So there are times when this Greek word that you could say you could translate detest or abhor, there are also times when it simply means to love less. And that's the way Jesus is using it here. Because, of course, Jesus doesn't want us to hate anybody. He said, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus even said, love your enemies. So Jesus isn't confused. He's not telling us on the one hand to love our neighbor and love our enemies and then hate your parents and hate your children and hate your spouse. No, he's not doing that. What he's saying, though, is that we are to love less. Not a morbid self-loathing or an intentional harming of oneself, but rather loving your life less than you love Christ. Loving your will less than his will. See, that's what it means to, to hate your life. It's like in comparison, I love Jesus more than I love me. I love the will of God, the call of God, the purposes of God, the plan of God more than I love my own plan, purpose, and will. That's, that's what he means to hate your life. Now, bearing fruit. Remember, Jesus says, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears fruit. The fruit... includes this showing Christ to a lost and dying world, glorifying the Father. This is what Jesus is saying, my followers will, this is what my servants will do. They'll follow me and this is what will happen. They will bear fruit. They will show me to a lost and dying world. They will glorify the Father. But this is what we all must realize that none of this has ever been done, nor will it ever be done, by self-centered, self-indulgent, pleasure-seeking, comfort-loving churchgoers. It'll never happen. Now, what are we doing? We're a Jesus-formed church on mission. What's our mission? Our mission is to show Jesus to the world. The world that wants to see Jesus, even though it might not seem like they want to see Jesus. But they do. They're, they're just, in many cases, people are just waiting to see a real, genuine picture of what Jesus is like. And we are the ones who get to show them that. But you see, I will never show anybody Jesus if I'm living for myself. 
It's, it's, it doesn't happen. If, if it's about me, then it won't be about Jesus. And so this, this thing of showing Jesus to a lost world, bearing fruit, glorifying the Father, it's only ever been done by those who sacrifice their time, their energy, their gifts, their resources, their lives as Jesus did. Like a grain of wheat that falls into the ground and dies and brings forth fruit, that's what we must do. Now listen, I don't, probably don't have to tell you this, but maybe I do. I don't think there's ever been a more self-centered generation than the one we find ourselves living in right now. And it's not just one, uh, one demographic. It's not just those dang millennials. You know, oh, they're so self-centered, those millennials. It's not the Gen Zers. You know, these are all the sociological labels that it, people get tagged with. Uh, some of you are Gen Xers. And some of you are baby boomers. And, you know, these are, these are all generational categories. But it's this, this self-centeredness permeates all these different generational categories. We live in a time of heightened self-centeredness. And that is not just part of the culture at large, uh, but, but we see it all around us, right? It, it, because it all comes down in many ways now to just whatever you want, whatever makes you feel best, whatever uh, your identity is going to be that's going to make you feel the best about yourself that you possibly can, then you've got to lay claim to that. You've got to live that out. And it doesn't matter what anybody around you says or thinks or does. And as a matter of fact, if they disagree with you at all, then you just cancel them because you are at the center of the universe. That, that's the mentality today. But it's not just outside the church. It's a mentality that has permeated the church culture today as well. And so, look, the mission is still the same. The mission is still people want to see Jesus. And we're still the ones who are supposed to be the, the ones to show him to them. But we can't do it if we're living for ourselves. And like I said, there's never been a time when that has really happened when people were living for themselves. But it's always come through sacrifice. It's always come through people hating their lives in the sense that, no, I want the will of God even more than I want my own will. I, I want to do what God created me to do more than I want to do what I feel like I'd like to do. You can't find um, any better examples of this uh, oftentimes um, outside of missionary biographies. This is one of the reasons why I love missionary biographies. Some of you, I've said this before, uh, some of you are aware of this. Uh, Cheryl does a weekly podcast called Women Worth Knowing. I listen to it faithfully every week. 
Um, because the women worth knowing are all, they're women worth knowing. They're, they're basically, oftentimes, most of the time, they're, they're women who were serving the Lord. They were on a mission to reach people, to help people, uh, to bring Jesus to people. And in, in doing so, they had to deny themselves. And you often see this with missionaries. In 1956, the year I was born, there were five young men who had a burden, and this burden preceded 1956. They, they had a vision and a passion to, to make Jesus known to this, this tribe uh, in Ecuador called the Waranis. And the Warwani were one of these unreached people groups. Um, they had become aware. They studied and prepared themselves. The Warwanis were also called the Alcas. But they were, the Alcas was not their, their true name. The Warwani was their true name. But Alca was attached to them because of their fierceness. They were fierce. They were murderers. They were headhunters. And these five young men, and in some cases their wives, they felt a call to take the gospel to these people. They felt the call to make Jesus known to them. So they moved to Ecuador with that intent. One of them, Jim Elliott, he had written... As a young man, he was a student at Wheaton College where he met his wife, Elizabeth. He had written in his journal these words. He had written, he is no fool who gives up when he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So this, this is in the heart and in the mind of, of Jim Elliott, uh, Nate Saint, Ed McCulley, Pete Fleming, Roger Yadarian, these were the five men who went on the mission to reach the Warani people. In the process of doing this, they all lost their lives. They all lost their lives. They had made contact with the Warani. They thought that it was, it was positive, it was good. They thought maybe they were making some headway, so they arranged to... Uh, try to have a face-to-face -face meeting with them, and everything went wrong. But the interesting thing about the story is that they had the ability to protect themselves had they chosen to. They had guns, at least one gun, a rifle that they had brought with them, of course, just for the reason of, of protection. But there came a point where when it's, they sensed that things were going wrong in their attempt to uh, connect with the Warani, there was a point where they could have defended themselves, but they chose not to because they felt that if they were to defend themselves, they would lessen the, the possibility of reaching these people for Christ. And so in the process, they were all murdered. All five of them died. 
But here's the amazing thing. Remember what Jesus said, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. They died today. The Warani people are Christians, the entire tribe, all Christians. They all became believers as a result of this over a process of time. Now, 10 or 15 years ago, we had a missions day here as we do annually. And we, we um, invited uh, the son of one of these men who was murdered. His, uh, the man was Nate Saint. It was his son uh, that we invited. He came to share with us and told the story. But also on that day, on this platform, stood the man who had speared his father to death, testifying how he had come to Jesus and received forgiveness and how the whole tribe had since become followers of Jesus. I mean, that is, you know, in some ways in our minds, right, that, that just seems unthinkable. Like, what? They, they knowingly went in and risked their lives and ended up giving them their lives so that others could see Jesus? Yes, that's exactly what they did. I think of uh, a young woman named Lilius Trotter. Lilius Trotter was um, a young woman who lived in London back in the late 1800s, and she was an extraordinary artist. Um, she had an incredibly promising career as an artist. The uh, famous art critic and social philosopher John Ruskin, he said to Lilius, he said this, he said that if she devoted herself to her art, he was certain that she would be the greatest living painter and that her work would become immortal. So that's her future. She has the talent. She has the opportunity. She has the backing. But Lilius Trotter felt called by God to go to North Africa and to take the gospel to the Muslim people. And so she left London as a young woman, and she spent the rest of her life bringing the gospel to Muslims in Algeria. And that's where she died. A grain of wheat. She was that grain of wheat that fell to the ground and died and produced much fruit. We don't necessarily have to move to a foreign country, die a martyr's death, give up a promising career to follow Jesus in his mission but we might. But we might. See, that, that's, what we, that, that's what it means not to love your life. It, it, it's it's kind of like this. Lord, I, let's just say I'm, I've got this uh, gift, this talent. I've got this amazing opportunity before me, uh, like Lilius maybe, but not necessarily that, but there, there's something there. I'm passionate about it. I'm pursuing it. I'm, I'm moving in that direction. I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus. And, and so here's what I do. It's like, Lord, I, I'm going for this. I feel gifted. I feel like you've enabled me. My heart's in this. I love this. This would be amazing. It would glorify you. But Lord, 
if you actually have something else, then I surrender this to you for that. See, that, that's what we're talking about here. And it doesn't have to be some extraordinary opportunity. It, it basically comes down to just anything, your, your own ambition, whatever, whatever it might be that could possibly stand in the way. You see, in some way or another, we, like the single grain of wheat, must fall to the ground and die in order for fruit to come forth. In order for people to see Jesus, we have to die. Paul the Apostle said about himself, he said, I die every day. And he said about the apostles, he said, death works in us so life can work in you. Now, when you read Paul's biographical statements in different places in his letters, uh, 2 Corinthians 11 is a great biographical statement by Paul. He talks about his experiences. He talks about how he was stoned. They tried to kill him by stoning. Um, he was beaten several times. He was shipwrecked. He was always meeting one disastrous situation after another. When he says we die every day, that's what he's talking about. But he said, death is working in us so life can work in you. You see, Paul knew that if, if these people, these lost pagan people were ever going to see Jesus, he was going to have to die to his comfort. He was going to have to die to a life of ease in order to make that happen. And he chose to do it. And so we we'll have to die to something. We might have to die to our pride. The pride that would say, I, I, wanna be, uh, I, I wanna be seen as something. I want others to think this of me. Uh, I, I'm afraid what people would think if I just came right out and said, I'm gonna follow Jesus. Or if I came right out and said, you know, I'm gonna leave my profession because I think God's calling me to some mission work. Uh, a lot of people don't do that because they fear what other people think. As we finish up the 12th chapter next week, we're going to see a group of people that says that they believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but they wouldn't confess him because they were afraid. They love the praise of other humans more than the praise of God. That's a real thing. It's a real thing that can keep us back. We must sometimes die to our own ambition. We might have plans. We might have goals. We might have things that we're going to do. We're going to accomplish these things. This is what I'm going to do in life. But you know, we should always remember this. There's, there's, we just have one life and it will go by. It will soon be passed, as someone has said. And truly, only what's done for Christ will last. Life goes by fast, faster than you think. And everybody my age knows that, right? Cheryl, you know how on your phones, like just these random pictures turn up from some date, like, I don't know what the rhyme or reason is behind it, but they're just suddenly a picture of you. Well, there's this picture that came up today on Cheryl's phone. It came up on mine of like a month ago, and she looks at it, and she goes, gosh, you look so young in that picture. You were so thin. What happened to you? And I said, I think that was only like 10 years ago. I don't know what happened. 
There's only one life. It'll soon be passed. That's what's happening. It's going by. But, you know, these are the things. It, we have these ambitions. We have these things, and which in and of themselves are not wrong unless they're in conflict with what God is actually calling us to do. It might be through those things that God will be glorified. If that's the case, wonderful. Hallelujah. That's, that's great. That's fine. But if they're in conflict, that's when we have to make the sacrifice. That's when we have to surrender our ambition, our comfort. Our comfort is a big thing, isn't it? Man, just love the comfort. Now, when I talked about Jim Elliott and, and this group, Nate Saint and these guys, uh, you, you can be sure the last thing on their minds was comfort. That wasn't even a thing, thing they thought about. They moved to the jungles of Ecuador. There was nothing comfortable about it. Lilius Trotter, leaving London, leaving that place in high society, going to Algeria at the time, poverty-stricken, uh, Islamic nation, nothing comfortable about it, but she left the comfort and the ease. But we have, we're a society that we have conditioned ourselves for comfort. And so we want to be as comfortable as we possibly can. And even today, I was speaking yesterday at a, at a preaching seminar where we're in you know, helping people learn to preach and with the idea that we're going to go out and start a church in a place where there's a need. And this didn't happen yesterday, but I'm just thinking back over time how there's, there's certain times where people are like, yeah, I want to go and I, I want to plant a church and feel like a real burden. And man, I feel like God's calling me to Malibu. You know, it's just, uh, it's a lot of need down in Malibu and some cool beaches too, and you know, some nice restaurants and things like that. It's like, you know, God's call and my comfort are going to come together and it's going to be an amazing thing. Some people do get called to Malibu. I'm not saying they don't, but, but this, is the, this is the thing. We have to recognize, no, dying, sacrificing means that we put that stuff aside. Okay, Lord, if, if this is, you're calling me to this, okay. When I used to live in London, and London's a great city. I love London. But Londoners would ask me, like, why did you move here? You live in Southern California. You guys have something there that we do not have here. It's called sun. <laughs> and I would always just simply say, well, I obviously did not move here for the weather. That's not, that's not what brought me. And that was not uncomfortable. But, but it's it, our comfort. And ultimately, we have to die to self. We have to die to self. In closing, the mission of the church is to sacrifice ourselves so others can see. A Jesus-formed community on mission. Now think about that Jesus-formed part for a second. You know, there's a term that is, you find it in mostly theological literature, but the term is cruciform. And what cruciform refers to is being formed in the way of the cross. Jesus, when we talk about a Jesus-formed community, that we are talking about cruciform because that's Jesus. We're talking about 
becoming more like Jesus who gave up himself, his rights, his life. He sacrificed to fulfill the mission of God. We're a Jesus-formed church on mission. We will fulfill the mission by allowing the formation to take place in our lives. And I'll close with this final word. Remember, Jesus said, if anyone serve me, let them follow me. Where I am, there my servant will be also. Now, as we finish up this morning, as we do every Sunday morning, we have the bread and the cup here before us. And this today is, we have the tangible reminder of the, of the very thing we're talking about today. Jesus is the grain that, that went into the ground and died. The bread and the cup, what do they speak to us of? The broken body of Jesus and the shed blood of Jesus. They speak to us of his death. And so we have an opportunity as we finish this morning, as we just take a little bit of time to recalibrate, to worship, we have a little bit of time to hold in our hand that bread and that cup and say, Lord, I want to be formed into your image. Lord, I, I want to serve you, and therefore I will follow you on the way of the cross so that others might see you. The ones that are looking for you. They don't even know they're looking for you, but they are. And Lord, I want to sacrifice my will so that your will can be done. Lord, help us to do that today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.